Good morning. Hey, if you have a Bible, you can open it. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 20 this morning, Matthew 20. While you're turning there, I want to give you two quick updates. Um, Today, uh, following third service, so the next service from 12 to 2, there's going to be a special time of prayer at the Isaiah 117 house. Um, If you're new to the church, um, we partnered with a ministry called Isaiah 117, partnered in that as a church congregation, we gave them uh, three quarters of an acre of land right here on our property, and they're building uh, independent ministry, so, um, but they are building this house that's going to work in the foster care system here in this county and in two other counties and make a really big impact. Uh, and we're really excited for the work that they're going to do. And so today's a cool opportunity if you would like to come over there to the house and spend some time just praying over that ministry, the community, the families that are going to be impacted by what takes place there. Um, we're just excited for it and want to invite you to do that. There'll be hot dogs and food uh, at 1 o'clock. So if you time it right, um, Ben's on the grill. So you can, that's why he's not leading worship. That's not why, but it is fun. So uh, the next thing is this. Uh, last Sunday after third service, Zach Momai, where are you in here? Zach, are you in this service? He, he was in this service because he was playing drums, but he was baptized into Christ after uh, third service uh, last week. And so would you celebrate that with me? Uh, we're pretty excited for him. So it's pretty neat. If you see him after service, he'll pl- he's playing drums. If you see him after service, uh, come and congratulate him. Uh, it was pretty neat. I got to preach he and Lucy's wedding um, and just was very excited to take part in that. And so uh, catch him after the service and let him know that you're celebrating with him. Let's pray together and we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your presence this morning. Thank you that when we pray, we're not just talking out loud. We're speaking to the creator of the universe. May that not be lost on us. And as we open your word, this is a gift from you to help guide and lead and transform and shape our lives and our understanding of who we are and our role in the world. And we ask that you would do that this morning as we open your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Daisy Cutter. Uh, That is the name of uh, what our military calls their biggest bomb, their biggest non-nuclear bomb. Here's a picture of this enormous bomb. And it was first used in the Vietnam War to clear out jungles and space for helicopters to be able to land. And now, uh, 50 to 60 years later, even with the technology that we have, like laser pointer technology that can do all kinds of incredible things, they still like to use these good old daisy cutters. And the reason is impact. The impact. Nothing terrifies the enemy like the shock and awe of 15,000 pound bomb hitting the ground. It's pretty earth shattering. Here's a picture of the impact that this bomb has and the impact that it has on the terrain and on the minds and the hearts of the people that are around it are pretty incredible. It's unforgettable. Um, And so they like to use these bombs. And as I read about this, I thought immediately, well, man, that correlates to a lot of us and our thinking. Many Christians believe that in our service and our ministry to the Lord Jesus, that if we don't have a daisy cutter type impact on people, if we don't have this earth shattering type ministry, if we don't uh, have enough recognition and aren't noticed by enough people, then we're not significant. If the work that we do for God and his kingdom doesn't rock the world, then it doesn't count. Have you ever had that feeling? Have you ever felt that kind of pressure on you? In whatever capacity you find yourself leading in, have you ever felt that kind of pressure? Don't get me wrong. I think wanting to have a big impact for God's kingdom is a really good thing. 
Like you want God's kingdom to advance. That's a great thing. And wanting to participate in that is a very noble thing. But here's the thing. It's also a very dangerous thing in the world that we live in. It's very dangerous because when you mix our desire for impact with sin's desire to sabotage that so that we would just feed our desire for notoriety and applause, it gets pretty cloudy. It gets pretty difficult. That curious feeling you have that every time you do something and you want that work to be applauded or recognized, again, not all bad all the time, so please hear me. There is a balance here. But you know the feeling. You put a picture out there. You put an article that you wrote out there, a story or a testimony out there, and that feeling you get of wanting to come back and check to see who's liked it, who's commented on it, who's sent encouragement my way. Like that feeling that you have, that's a dangerous thing when you mix it into the impact you're called to have for the kingdom of God. It's dangerous because it's competing for the affection of your heart. The affection of your heart to be recognized, to get honor, to get some sort of glory for yourself is competing with the call to have an impact for the kingdom of God. And what happens is whatever you find yourself giving into more begins to shape the way that you see things particularly the way you see yourself, and it shapes and forms your own identity, our desire to be noticed for the work that we do. See, impact and influence create such a pressure on people. Mix that with the rise of social media and the ability to go viral with something that you do, and you've got a dangerous, a dangerous concoction. I mean, you can't even be a mom anymore unless you're the most popular mom, right? Think about it. Like, you're posting pictures, you, 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 you do something, you, like you can't even just have a moment with your kids unless everybody knows you had the moment. You can't institute a tradition or start a new uh, way that your family's going to go, a new direction that your family's going to go, and just celebrate with the family. Why? Because if nobody noticed it, it actually even happened. Because you've been conditioned to feel that it's got to have this daisy cutter type impact or somehow it's not significant at all. And as a result, the way that we lead and the way that we try to gain influence begins to be fueled by what the world defines as success and impact. And then we begin to form our identity around these things. And that's where it gets dangerous. Can I tell you that the things that are true in the areas of your life that you find yourself leading, whether it's in your home, your marriage, a small business, a department of the company that you work in as you're the new manager, wherever you find a student, in a school, wherever you find yourself in a leadership position, the, the temptation to turn that into something that feeds your desire for notoriety, that's true in those areas. It's also true in the church. We're in this series on values, and we're preaching through the different values that we have as a church. And the, the point of doing this was for us to come up from air from our, our verse-by-verse study through Ephesians, And look at who we are as a church. The elders came together and spent months, if not a little over a year, just praying and talking and discussing and asking the question, who are we as a church? And we came up with these values just as a way to help us wrap our mind around it. Like this is where we think God has led us to be. This is who he's called us to be. Under the big C church, this small body of the big C church, this small grouping of people, brothers and sisters in Christ, here's the things that we value as we're pursuing the bigger mission of God's kingdom. So that as we move into the future as a church, we know what we feel called to hold on to and make sure it doesn't get uh, compromised as the church continues to grow and we continue to do different things. This last value that we've come to, leading pastorally, can sound confusing. The wording can be confusing, but here's my 
defense of the wording. Both words are in the Bible. <laughs> so the idea of leading pastorally, here's what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that the pastors are in charge. So let's get that out of here. We're going to spend the rest of our time together defining what we mean by leading pastorally. But let me tell you why we got to this place. It came out of a crisis, if you will. I don't know a better word than to describe it. A crisis that happened for me in my life, in my ministry. If you're new to our church, um, I've been on staff since January 1st, 2009. Prior to that, um, uh, my father-in-law, had been, he has been on staff since 1988. And so David, who you've heard preach, if you're new here, David has preached here as well. He's been on, he was on staff as the senior minister from 1988 until 2016. I joined the staff January 1st, 2009. And in 2016, we did what was called leadership succession, if you will. I, I stepped into the senior minister role under the one condition that David stayed on staff. Uh, they honored that condition, obviously. And so here we are. About a year, a little over a year into this new role of senior minister or lead minister, I began to feel what I would describe to you as a heaviness settle in on me. It felt foggy and confusing. I was um, feeling some anxiety around it, I guess, discontent, irritated. Don't say amen to that, but irritable. And I couldn't figure it out. And as I began to explore it, I came to this conclusion. And I say this to be very transparent and honest with you because we just preached on that too. I wanted to quit. Not because I was mad at anybody here at the church, but I did. I, I had resolved in my mind, I think I'm done. I can't do this. I'm only a year in, and I don't want to do this anymore. And so I began to explore why that was, and I walked into my father-in-law's office, and I explained to him what I was feeling, and it was this pressure, this pressure that had been put on me in this role, not by New Hope, but by the bigger culture and the pressure to build a platform, the pressure, pressure to gain a big following. If you're going to lead a church that's going to be healthy, you've got to be well known. And so to post pictures of yourself or, or to post and promote your own preaching and teaching, to get yourself out there. So, and it was just this enormous pressure to do that, and it just fell off to me. And as I explored it, I had people challenge me and say, well, that's okay. You can get that platform and it's going to have this impact. And, and they made it sound as though as long as I would say that I was doing it for Jesus, I could justify any kind of self-promotion that I wanted to. I struggled. I struggled with it. Now, other people might not. Other people might not have that struggle and it might not even be in that category. But for me... In this role, it became so heavy to think, man, if I have to be a preacher, I've got to be building my platform and my following. Otherwise, the church can't move and grow. I don't want to do that anymore. And I was confused, and I walked in, and he patiently listened to me as he does. He's just very gifted that way. He gave me a couple books. I read one of them that night. I didn't go to bed. I just read the book. Began a journey. Began to talk to different people, saw a counselor, sought friends, sought mentors, Spent time with our elders, talking and praying through it. Got through that season as I began to form what I want to talk about today and why this became a value at the church. What does it mean to be a pastor in 2022? I mean, really, to be a pastor. I wrestled through that. And so, I, funny story, I came to the elders after kind of formulating this idea that just want to be a pastor. And I went to them and I said, hey, there's three things I've come to 
And I say, guys, if this isn't what you want at New Hope, I get it, and, and I'll bow out peacefully, and nobody will know the difference. No big deal. But if I'm going to move on in this role, I want to preach the Bible. I want to preach the Bible. That's what I think people need to hear. And I want to be a pastor. And sure, there's elements of leadership that are involved in that, but I just want to pastor people. And then I want you guys to lead. I want the elders to lead the church. And they said, what do you think we've had for 30 years? <laughs> it's like, touche, touche, guys. So let's get after it. And that's what we've been trying to do. Let's get after it in that area. And so I was challenged in a lot of ways. Let me tell you a phrase that stuck out to me. Let me give you an example from Scripture to kind of form our thesis, our understanding of what we're trying to get at when we talk about this value. The phrase was challenging to me as it describes what leadership in the Bible really looks like. And maybe this phrase will challenge you in any area that you're leading. This isn't just about the church. This is about our homes, our businesses, our workplaces, our schools. Everywhere we find ourselves leading, we can be challenged to lead pastorally. And here's the phrase. The phrase was this, buried in an unmarked grave. Buried in an unmarked grave. It's a pretty unusual and unexpected way to describe your life, the finishing of your life. But especially if your name is Moses. If your name is Moses. One of the greatest men who ever lived. Deuteronomy tells us in chapter 18 that Moses, there was no prophet in all of Israel that even came close to him all the way until Jesus showed up on the scene. This is one of the greatest people that's ever lived. One of the greatest leaders. He led two million people, Israelites, out of Egypt. Spent 40 years guiding them safely across the desert with a bunch of whining and complaining. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, and other than Jesus, performed more miracles than anybody we know of in history. Pretty great resume. Pretty well known. And yet, when his life and his ministry and his leadership comes to an end, and Moses dies. He's taken by God to a place that nobody can see, and he's buried in a place that nobody would ever find him. Buried in an unmarked grave. It's pretty challenging. Contrast that to the place that the Israelites had just come from when they were led by Moses out of that in Egypt. When one of their leaders dies, you know it, and you're not going to forget it. There's all kinds of celebration lifting up this leader. In fact, we still have their celebrations, if you will, all across the desert in the form of pyramids as they built monuments as tribute to these leaders so that nobody would ever forget the leader who led them during that season. And you know the wealth that we've uncovered as we've gone into some of these tombs that they would just adorn these leaders with even after they were dead. And you contrast that with what took place in Israel. When somebody died in Israel, there was no period pyramid. There was no elaborate gravesite. There's no greatness to be celebrated. They were just buried by God in an unmarked grave. And that's exactly how God wanted it to be. Because God wanted his people to be different. He wanted his people to stand out and to be separated, to not look the same as everybody else. He wanted their idea of greatness, their idea of success to be defined by their connection to God, not by the following that they had from people, the applause and the approval and the number of accolades and the, the greatness of what they were leading. They wanted everything in their life that was deemed a success to be defined by the God that they were connected to intimately. You see, that's what challenged me. Because I think about what it looks like to be in God's economy and not 
our economy, what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God and not just in the kingdom of this world and what it looks like to lead, should this not describe all leadership? To lead is to pastor when you're a Christian. It's to care for people. Leading pastorally is about understanding that every single role you find yourself in as a leader, from being a parent to a coach to a teacher to a business owner, it's just for a season. It's for this season God has asked you, would you take care of this for me? Would you lead? So then all of leadership in the kingdom of God is about stewardship. I've been asked to take care of this for a season. You heard Bill, one of our elders, say this is the first time in 27 years I don't have a student in my house. Why? Because when he did, that was a season that he was asked to steward in his home as the leader of his home to care for his family well because that season doesn't last. There is no season of leadership that you're a part of that will not end. And so the question becomes, what kind of leader are you called to be in that which you've been asked to steward well for the glory of God and the benefit of others. It doesn't matter where you're called to lead, but if you follow Jesus, it does matter how you are called to lead. Is this not the message of the gospel? Jesus gave up the comfort of heaven. He gave up being con- he who was considered equal with God, that Jesus gave that up for the benefit of other people, did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but in humility emptied himself for the benefit of everyone else. And if you echo that with Paul's words in that same chapter, in Philippians chapter 2, he begins that in verse 5, and he says, Have this mind in yourselves, Christians. Adopt this view of life. Adopt this view of leadership. Do not count yourselves above other people, but empty yourself in humility for the benefit of other people. Back in 2010, I was finishing grad school over at Lincoln Christian Seminary. And one of the guys that was a couple years ahead of me had uh, preached this sermon on the Gospel of Matthew. Brilliant preacher and student. Would go on to become the New Testament professor at Ozark Christian College just wonderful teacher and preacher. And in summarizing the Gospel of Matthew that we're going to look at a passage briefly this morning, he had this incredible uh, summary of the Gospel of Matthew, one of the messages of this great uh, writing that Matthew had about the life of Jesus. And he said this. He said, summarize Matthew, I'd say this. Jesus didn't come just to save you. And Jesus didn't come just to save me. He came to establish a kingdom. Let me repeat it because it's kind of jarring at first. Jesus did not come just to save you. And he did not come just to save me. He came to establish a kingdom. Now, don't hear it wrong. He came to save you. But he came for more than that. He absolutely came to provide you with salvation, but he came to establish a kingdom that would operate different than the kingdoms of this world. And therefore, those of us who he did save, those of us who do follow him, are called by him to reorient our life the way we think, the way we live, the way we make decisions around participating and living in his kingdom and not the kingdoms of the world that we find around us. And living in his kingdom looks different. It stands out because it's an upside-down way of living in the world that we find ourselves in. And you see this theme through Matthew's gospel. You see it right away in the genealogy. Kingdom, chapter 2, verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. Chapter 4, verse 17. The kingdom of God is at hand. Chapter 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
He continues in chapter 9 and chapter 11, chapter 13, where he tells these stories, Jesus does, and he says, well, the kingdom of heaven is like. And then he gives you this analogy that doesn't make sense. It's this upside down way of viewing the kingdom, not big and powerful and overwhelming, but instead it's like a mustard seed. It starts out small and moves at a different pace, but eventually it grows. Eventually it becomes something powerful. Kingdom. One of these encounters that Jesus has In talking about the kingdom, he describes for us what it means to lead pastorally, to lead in his kingdom, in whatever area we find ourselves leading. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word in Matthew chapter 20, as we look at this encounter Jesus has. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. I love that. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. (laughs) That's great. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom... They have been prepared by my father. Then the ten who heard about this, they were indignant with the two other brothers. Jesus called them all together and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and that their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you, though. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word. You can be seated. A few things that take place here. First is there's this request made by James and John's mom, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. And she comes and she makes this request that when you first read it, you're like, what are you doing? Like positioning yourself for power and influence. And yet there's some nobility in her request. There's a recognition that the kingdom of Jesus would, in fact, come, even though up until this point, it sure didn't look like they thought it was going to look. And they recognized, oh, it's coming, and when it comes, we want to be ready. There's also probably this thought in their culture, because if you were to sit at the right or the left of the ruler of the authority, then you too had authority to go and accomplish many things. And so they might be thinking, well, we want to have a big influence. We want to have that daisy cutter type bomb of an explosion of impact for the kingdom of God. And so if we can just work our way into these positions of authority, if somehow we can build this platform, if we can get to this point, then we'll leverage that influence for the advancement of his kingdom. And so they make this request. And Jesus' response to the request is brilliant. (laughs) You don't know what you're asking right now. Because my kingdom doesn't look like that. You're looking at the idea of a kingdom through the eyes of the world. And at their point, it was the Roman Empire, big and powerful and influential. And he's saying, my kingdom doesn't operate that way. And he kind of leaves them hanging there. My kingdom is different, and you're going to need to learn that. It comes with suffering. Can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? It comes with rejecting All of these things that you desire and instead humbling yourself to serve other people that are around you. And they think they can handle it because they have no idea what it is he's about to have to go through. And that's the same thing in the kingdom of God. Leadership is not about building platform and leveraging influence. It's about serving, self-sacrificially giving of yourself for the benefit of other people. That's what it means to be a leader in the kingdom of God. 
And so you have this explanation then that other disciples, they get really mad. And, you know, we're not exactly sure why they get really upset. It could have been that they were thinking, man, you beat us to the punch, dude. I've been working on my line for like three or four years, like three or four months. I'm like coming to him asking, like, I want to be the person. And you beat me to it. And you ask. Maybe they're upset about that. Maybe, just maybe they're upset because they think it's just an unnecessary question to ask. Whatever their motivation is in being mad at James and John for this request, Jesus doesn't like their response either. And so Jesus calls them all together and he huddles them up and he begins to explain what leading pastorally really looks like. And he says to them, you know what leadership looks like in the world around you. When the Gentiles, they work hard and it's a dog eat dog, me against the world, I'm first mentality. And they get to this power, they lord it over everybody else and they want everyone to know who's in charge and everyone to know who's the best and everyone to know who has all of the influence. And they lord it over all the other people at the, at the expense of the people, not the benefit of the people to lift themselves up more. And he says, but that can't be true of you. You want to lead in my kingdom, he says, then you need to be last and elevate other people above yourselves. You want to lead in my economy, in my kingdom, then it's not about serving yourself. It's actually about serving other people, benefiting them over and above your own needs. And then he beautifully summarizes it. And he says, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give my life as a ransom for others. A king who came to serve his people but not be served by his people. That's an upside down way of thinking in their world. And sadly, it is in ours too. A leader who puts the interests of others above his own. As Paul would write, consider others more important than yourself. I see three characteristics briefly here of Jesus' leadership just in this encounter, the first is this, uh, leading pastorally is a call to be a shepherd. You notice how Jesus started out. He started out listening. He asked, what is it that you want? He knew what she wanted. And in fact, in the Greek language, what is it that you want is singular. He's not broadcasting this. He's talking directly at her. What is it that you want? What's your request? What do you need? And then he listens and he hears her out. It's what a good shepherd does. A good leader listens to the people that God is for this season, asked them to lead and take care of. A leader is a shepherd. To know your people so that in relationship with their leader, their shepherd, their pastor, people might be encouraged, comforted, urged, and warned. Because there's a relational connection. See, leadership in the kingdom of God is at its core relational. It's about getting to know the people that God has asked you to take care of. I see a teacher, not just a shepherd here too, but I also see a teacher. You see, Jesus doesn't get passive because leadership in God's economy is not a mix of active listening so that you don't offend somebody. Like, I don't, I don't want to offend anybody and I just kind of want to sit back and I'm going to be passive and just let everybody say, no, he teaches. He corrects her false thinking. He comes in and he says, you have no idea what you're talking about. You don't know what you're requesting. And then when the disciples get upset, he calls them together and he teaches them and he corrects them. But he's not teaching for the benefit of proving to them that they're wrong. Like, I'm right and you're wrong. He's teaching with the heart of a good teacher. Coming alongside. Why? Because somebody who leads in the economy of God, the kingdom of God, leadership, leading pastorally is about teaching people so that they draw closer to Jesus. So that they understand what God is calling them to better. That's the call. You teach with the heart of a teacher. Not to build your platform and prove to everybody how much you know. Last I see here is I see a servant. See, leaders have to lead the way. 
have to go first, have to sacrifice. Yeah, make hard decisions. And yes, there is an authority element to leadership, but we have elevated the authority part of all over the service part. And Jesus came and said, no, I came to serve people, sacrificially give of myself for the benefit of other people. This is what he's called us to do, to serve and to love and to care for people. In order to do this, we must, as Paul writes, take on that mind of Christ Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself. And if you're called to lead in any capacity, it's about emptying yourself for the benefit of the people and the glory of God. That's leadership. That's leading pastorally. So let me ask, can that be said of you? In your home, in your classroom, in your workplace, can it be said of you? that you empty yourself for the benefit of the people you're called to lead, serving them. God does not call leaders in his kingdom to be popular and powerful. I don't read that anywhere. To create a platform that you can then leverage for his benefit. Don't read that anywhere either. He calls people to be humble and faithful, to let him take care of anything else that comes from that. So to be pastoral, it's to be tough and tender, courageous and comforting. Being pastoral is different than active listening and just non-offensiveness. A truly pastoral approach is leading, leading people in a way that has authority, but it's mixed with compassion. It provides protection through self-sacrifice. It looks after the weak by offering leadership that is strong and caring for the benefit of others. So let me walk you through a couple things that this means for New Hope. Like, why is this a value here at the church, and how does this play out in our church? First of all, it means this, every single position of leadership from leading a small group to leading a work project to going on a mission trip uh, to preaching, leading worship, any role that you serve in leading here is about shepherding, teaching, and serving other people every single time. That's what it's about. It's not about leveraging platform and elevating certain people to a place of authority and influence. It's not it. And we're trying really hard to fight against that. Let me tell you a couple of ways that we do that. We have a phrase that we use around here called tables and chairs. It's tables and chairs. It appears on every single job description for people that apply here. And they're like, what is this tables and chairs thing? And then we have a cool conversation after confusing them because we say this. It doesn't matter. No matter how qualified you are, no matter how influential you are, no matter how much authority you have, no matter what role you serve in at New Hope Christian Church, you will never be in a role or a position where you are above setting up tables and chairs for the next event, ever. Everybody participates every time, and nobody gets special treatment. Another way that we've tried to apply it here is this, we're elder-led, and that's not always popular in the church world. And I've struggled with understanding why not, because it's pretty plain in the Bible that the church is elder-led. And so our church is elder-led. So I say that to tell you this. I am the senior minister at New Hope Christian Church, and I am not, for lack of a better way of describing it, the CEO. I do not tell the elders what to do. I do not tell them that this is the way the church needs to go. I am one of seven elders, and I'm fully and totally accountable to them, and I promise you they hold me accountable. They ask me questions about my personal life all the time. They check on me. They jab at me. They humble me quite often, comically and seriously. And here's the thing, there's a chemistry that exists between us, but here's what I would want you to hear. I love these men and their families because they've emptied themselves for this place and modeled what it looks like to lead pastorally. The the, the last thing is this, it's pace. We want to move at a pace that's relational, and this is going to look different than a fast-paced, production-oriented, get-as-much-done-as-possible pace that the world tells us leadership is supposed to look like. 
There's also going to be seasons, though, where we're exhausted because we're going to move at a fast pace. Here's the point. The pace that we want to move at is a pace that never leaves people behind. We never want to move faster than we're capable of taking care of people and pastoring and leading people well. And again, can these things be said of you in your life and the leadership that you've been called to? Let me ask you this question. How does your approach to leading or leadership in whatever role that you're leading lead you to walk closer to Jesus and the people that you're leading as well? Can I just encourage you this way? The way I was encouraged during my processing of this was this. Someone said these words to me. Stop working so hard on influence and start working harder on faithfulness. Stop working so hard on platform and start working harder to love people. Let God take care of everything else. Just be faithful and everything else will work out. This is a picture. If you fly into New, uh, Washington, D.C. or you drive there at night, you'll see this lit up. I've used this analogy before, but it just fits. The Washington Monument is beautiful. When you look at this picture, the first thing that pops into your mind is not, man, I wonder how much it costs to light that up. Like, how many light bulbs are pointed at that thing right now? Like, you're not thinking about that, but it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, yay tax dollars, to light up the Washington Monument. Hundreds of, and all, if, you do the, if you look at the science behind it, there's all kinds of different sizes of light bulbs and voltage. There's all kinds of technology involved so they can project images up onto the Washington Monument. All of that's incredible. But you don't look at it and think, man, the light bulbs are just awesome. Like, you don't. You look at it and you're like, that's beautiful. And it's a perfect analogy of what leading pastorally is all about. We are not called to be the monument in any capacity. We are called to be the light bulb. So turn the light on and get out of the way. And let Jesus get all of the glory in every role you're called to lead in. Magnify him in your home. Make much of him in your marriage. Make sure that here at this church, we are not lifting up any individual or any group of people, but instead we're just a bunch of light bulbs that flip the light on and we get out of the way so that everybody else can look at and admire and love and follow Jesus. So that at the end of the day, when we're face to face with the Lord, the testimony of our leadership would be that we made much of the work and person of Jesus Christ and not ourselves. So let's go. Let's do that. Let's make much of Jesus as a church family. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus. And I thank you for how beautiful it is when people get it and they just shine a light on him. God, I'm so challenged by the idea of being buried in an unmarked grave. It's scary because we want to be known and we want to be loved and cared for, and we get that confused with notoriety and false attention. As we finish preaching on these values, God, that's my prayer, that we would just be a church family where we are known and loved in a very real and genuine way so that we can grow in spiritual maturity and our knowledge and understanding of Jesus so that when the time comes, we can just turn the light on and get out of the way and that the testimony of the faith of New Hope Christian Church, when this season that our church family currently has comes to an end, would be that we made much of Jesus and not of ourselves. Would you help us to that end? We ask you for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.